1: This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor.
2: Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. And as I like to remind you each week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? With regard to Chen's newsletter, you do need to put your name on a waiting list As Chen accepts new subscribers, uh, that is up to a certain number of subscribers totaling, um, uh, and he accepts new subscribers only during the first few days, the first 10 business days actually of each quarter. So on April 1st, Chen will start accepting new subscribers. So if you're interested in Chen's excellent newsletter, you need to go to miningstocks.com. That's miningstocks.com. Put your name on a waiting list there. uh, Or you can call my office during regular business hours in New York at 718-457-1426. 718-457-1426. You can also sign up for my newsletter um, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks at uh, miningstocks.com. Uh, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, and I uh, would invite each of you to send your questions, uh, keep sending questions in to questions for at gmail.com. That's questions the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. I want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors uh, for this week's show are Nanostruck Technologies. Caden Resources, Brazil Resources, Metanor Resources, and joining us last week was Canamex Resources. And later, uh, in a few minutes from now, we're going to be speaking to uh, Canamex's CEO, Bob uh, Kramer. He's going to be with me after the first commercial break. Well, the gold shares are taking a bit of a haircut today and yesterday as well. We've had quite a run in the gold shares so far this year. I can tell you that uh, some of my gold shares are up, well, on in the aggregate, one group is up over 50% at the end of last week and the first few uh, weeks of this year. So it's been a very, very good year so far, a big bounce in the gold shares. Uh, but have we seen the bottom? Well, I don't know that, uh, no, neither does anyone else. You can have your opinions. J. Michael Oliver, who has recently been a guest on this show, uh, put out a chart that he sent out uh, this morning that shows quite definitely that despite the bounce in gold that we've had, we cannot say with conviction that the bear market uh, is over. The cyclical bear market within a secular bull, I would say. Michael's momentum work. Shows that gold has been unable uh, with this latest bounce to break above a downtrend momentum resistance line. Technically speaking, he is not in the least bit surprised by that. In fact, I believe that Michael is rather certain that it's just a matter of time before we see the cyclical bear uh, in gold and at which time it will once again be in sync with the secular bull market of a lifetime that started back in 2002 when gold was around $350 or so. Well, key numbers now to watch, according to Michael, are $1,400, uh, which, by the way, was what Charles Nanner, that was his short-term upside target. If we can break decidedly above 1400 and even better, according to Michael, if we can get to the August highs of 1428, then gold is likely to have made uh, that transition from bear to bull. That is the cyclical bear to a secular back to the secular bull. I would just like to uh, note that you can check out J. Michael Oliver's website at Oliver MSA. That's Mary Sarah Albert dot com oliver so the decline we are witnessing today and yesterday should i believe be viewed as providing you with with more of a buying opportunity before the big secular bull market in gold resumes and well that's been stalled over the last couple of years it's uh, been disheartening for those of us on the long side for sure but if you manage to squirrel away some cash you can really be in a great position to buy some really Uh, interesting and I think very promising, albeit speculative, junior gold mining shares. And speaking of new buying opportunities in just a a couple of minutes, I'm going to be speaking to Bob Kramer, who is the president and CEO of Canamex Resources. I recently purchased shares of this company from my own retirement account, and I recommended it in my newsletters to subscribers at around 12 cents, actually. Um, and, And, you know, selling at such a low price, but I think this is just the way this sector is right now. It's not a commentary about this particular company. As a matter of fact, I see it as a great speculative opportunity uh, because it's come out with some very substantial uh, high-grade long intercepts. Uh, People that follow this sector, I think most people will be very impressed. Uh, And so Bob will be with me in just a few minutes after our first commercial break, and we'll uh, hear what he has to say about the significance of some of those high-grade intercepts. Uh, And then uh, former World Bank economist and best-selling author Richard Duncan will be with us to talk about the gold standard um, and why he thinks it's not possible to go back to a gold standard. He's also going to talk about quantitative easing. Actually, he thinks it's not possible to start tapering. He thinks quantitative easing is, is here for at least uh, the rest of this year and probably into next year as well. But uh, he's going to talk about a model that, he, that he's put together. It's a liquidity model that is geared to help you and me and other investors know when to put uh, perhaps step on the accelerator and become more aggressive uh, in buying stocks and uh, when maybe to leave off the accelerator and even tap on the brakes. So his... Uh, uh, his uh, model it 's a um, liquidity model is really geared to helping you know when to become more aggressive or less aggressive in the uh, in your investments, not just in gold but in general in the equity markets so um, I should note that um, if you hang around and listen you 'll get a code that 's necessary uh, to subscribe at a fifty percent discount uh to Richard's service. So uh, in addition to uh his very interesting views, I think uh, it pays for you to stick around and listen to what Richard has to say and and get that 50% discount on his uh on his service if you uh, are so inclined. Okay, well, I see it is time we need to go to commercial break, but don't go away because when I return, I'll be right back with Bob Kramer, the CEO of Canamex Resources. As the bull market in gold resumes, gold shares will explode to much higher levels, and those companies that are ramping up production will take off first. Metanor Resources, a symbol MTO in Canada and MEAOF in the U.S., is now in commercial production and producing over 4,500 ounces of gold per month from its bachelor mine in Quebec. With seven drills turning, I look for the company's gold resource to grow dramatically on both its bachelor and berry projects. I believe Metanor now offers major upside potential for savvy investors.
4: Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt.
0: Canamex Resources has commenced a 10,000 meter drill program on its flagship Bruner Gold Project in Nevada. This follows a successful 2013 field season, which included a 58 meter intercept of 5.2 grams per ton gold. NYSE market-listed Gold Resource Corporation just completed a $2 million strategic investment in Canamex. And NYSE-listed Hecla Mining Company also is a strategic investor. Canamex Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under symbol CSQ and on the OTCQX under symbol CNMXF.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me for the first time today Bob Kramer. He's the president and CEO of Canamex Resources Corp. Canamex Resources Corp. trades in Canada under the symbol of CSQ, Uh, You can buy it down here in the States as I have under the symbol CNMXF. Uh, It's trading today at about 10.5 cents U.S., a little higher than that in Canada these days, 121 million shares outstanding. The company has had a historical, not yet a 43101 resource of 385,000 ounces of gold. Uh, It has some of its major shareholders are quite impressive, gold uh, resources, Hecla mining uh, and management has a nice chunk of shares as well, which is something I always like to see. I like to know management's interests are tied with mine as a shareholder. Uh, So this is a company that um, uh, we're going to hear something about. It's selling, as I say, about 10.5 cents. Um, And uh, so I should mention that the stock, uh, that I did recommend this stock to my subscribers this past weekend. uh, And I think I did tell you that I've purchased some myself. So it's really good to have uh, Bob Kramer with me. Welcome, Bob. It's good to have you on Turning Hard Times into Good Times.
5: Jay, thank you very much. A pleasure to be on your show.
2: Uh, Great to have you. Uh, Time being um, an issue here, we want to get right into it. Your flagship property is the Bruner property located in central Nevada. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the history of this property, which I know has been explored by some pretty impressive uh, and successful mining companies in the past?
5: You're quite correct. Uh, The property is located in an area called the Walker Lane District, east-southeast of Reno, Surrounded by multi-million ounce deposits, probably the most well-known is the Round Mountain Mine, which has produced over 10 million ounces of gold over several decades. And as you noted uh, in the past, Morrison, Knudsen, Miramar, Glamis, Newmont, and Kennecott all um, over a period of a couple of decades uh, did work on the property. Resulting in uh, a non-43101 compliant um, summary of, of what was found, indicating about 385,000 um, ounces. Classic Nevada uh, oxide uh, potential open pit uh, heap leachable and uh, that's the area on the property that we call the historic resource. About a mile from that is an area we call Pinalis East, where we had a very significant discovery that was announced in July of uh, 2012, wherein we uh, intersected uh, 110 meters of 4.08 grams.
2: That is really impressive, no question about it. You had, uh, you had several intercepts, and I want to ask you a little bit more about that. You are earning in, I think, 75% into this property. What do you have to do uh, to earn your 75% and who are you earning it from?
5: We're earning it from a company called uh, Patriot, uh, which uh, trades uh, in the U.S. on the, uh, on the pink sheets uh and we have structured the transaction so that when we spend total of 6 million dollars which is obviously not uh, an issue for us uh we earn uh 70% and then according to the agreement uh and another 5% would come by way of a bankable feasibility study it's unlikely that we would take that final step that that math just doesn't make sense so we look at this as a uh, 70 30 uh, proposition and Depending upon the financial ability of Patriot at that time, the way the, the agreement is structured is they, would, they could be watered down once we call for uh, a, a joint venture uh, mm-hmm. after we've earned our interest.
2: Okay, well, you have a historical resource of 385,000 ounces. You mentioned their oxide. It's a heap leach, uh, open-pit heap leach target, uh, which is always, you know, a good way to start because your economics can be much more favorable than a, than a high-grade underground mine. But, you know, that's all fine and dandy, and I think that's uh, more than justifies your current share price, in my view, although uh, you will need to upgrade that into 43 When do you expect to do that? We've announced
5: uh, a rather considerable drill program, 10,000 meters, about 1,000 meters of core, 9,000 meters of RC or reverse circulation, about 29 holes in the historic resource area that we were just talking about, and another 24 holes in uh, Pinellas East. We've actually uh, completed the first of the 53 holes, so we are back on the property drilling. This is going to be a very aggressive uh, period of time for us.
2: Yeah, your uh, the Pinolis East uh, you talk about, which is to me very exciting. This is what really turned me on to the story. To find that you have the uh, open pit heap leach target, that's good, and that could be economic in its own right. Perhaps someday we have to you have to do more work. Um, uh, but it's this high grade that the. Um, that you talk about, 408 grams over 110 meters, another intercept, 3.1 gram over 91 meters, and 5.23 grams over 57, 50, almost 58 meters. These are astoundingly good holes. Uh, you believe this is a feeder zone that's feeding the higher, the lower grade oxides at the surface, is that right? Yes, that's
5: particularly so with respect to B1340 that you uh, referenced 58 meters of 5.23 grams because that is in the historical resource area. My partner in this, Greg Hahn, who is the geologist, I'm more of the financial guy, uh, he's what I call a been there, done that geologist. He's taken properties from exploration through development into production. He has run gold and base metal mines in the western u.s so he you know as they say this is not his first rodeo he looked at the work that had been done by the other companies as we neared the end of, of last field season 2013 and felt that um there was the potential for that high grade feeder zone which you've referenced and uh designed and and uh drilled hole B1340, which which absolutely nailed it. So you wind up in a situation where something that had had been perceived as being a relatively low-gate, heap leachable. Potentially economic, certainly, but, but let's be realistic, not uh, necessarily something that's going to move the needle as far as the market is concerned. We you start talking about a high-grade feeder zone underneath that and then a mile away with the Pinalis East uh, with some of the intercepts that, that we have uh, already obtained? It really sets the stage for a pretty exciting uh, 2014 field season.
2: Well, it certainly does. Uh, with regard to the oxides, let me ask you, though, as I look at a map uh, on your PowerPoint presentation on your website, you show, I think, about seven different targets. Uh, are there other oxide targets that might be there that you could draw on to feed one single heap leach? Yes, that
5: certainly uh, that potential uh, most assuredly uh, exists. And I think what's really important for your listeners to understand is that unlike many small companies who really focus just on on the drilling, we have really focused in on the metallurgy and we've done a full column leach test on the ore from, uh, the historical resource. Did that with Caps Cassidy, very well known company, uh, in the U.S and uh we had uh 85% plus recovery actually when we stopped the test at uh 83 days we hit uh, at 89% recovery with low reagent costs so it's important i think to understand that not only have have we found some very interesting intercepts to to put it mildly but we believe that we're on track um with something that has the potential to be economic. Obviously, as we work through the year, do more drilling and work towards that maiden forty three one oh one, that's uh, when all of this comes to fruition.
2: Now, how far apart, you mentioned that this high-grade discovery is only a mile away from the resource, but these seven different targets, they're all pretty close, are they not? So that, so that the economics could work. That, yeah.
5: Exactly. So if you're talking in terms of, of future development, Um, that obviously is of interest. One of the things that we're focused on here, we're going to be talking more about as we move through the next month or so, is 500 acres um, on the historical resource is patented uh, ground or private ground and the the level of scrutiny that one has to go through in order to get through the permitting process uh, is typically less on patented ground than it is um, on uh, BLM ground Bureau of Land management so we're, we are starting to develop a, a strategy and again looking down the road a bit uh, where we we may focus in on developing uh, this particular uh, area uh, of the property first, while we obviously continue to explore in other areas.
2: Let me ask you one other thing. Then you have these seven targets that you've identified. Uh, do your geologists believe that they could be linked together, all of these targets, uh, with a, with a, with this feeder zone that you've discovered, or are these possibly different occurrences, different uh, different deposits? It's
5: I would say, in fairness, it's too early to tell. The drilling that we're going to be doing, and we're focusing in just from a resource standpoint um, on these two areas of Pinalis East, the Discovery Zone and the Historic Resource, we're going to know much, much more as we work through the season and, and work through the 53 holes. Um, we will continue to do... uh work uh, in other areas on the property, but the primary focus absolutely is going to be uh, the drilling in these two particular areas. As I said earlier, you just don't leave a 5.23 gram uh, per ton uh, intercept and and not give it its uh, due attention.
2: A 58-meter intercept at that. Uh, Let me ask you, with just about a minute and a half or so left here, how much money do you have in the till? This is always a question for companies, especially those that are selling at 12 cents.
5: Fair enough. Um, I, we just completed a transaction with a
2: company called Gold
5: Resource Corporation. They're an NYSE market-listed um, uh, producer. Uh, we completed a $2 million placement um, with them, which was done, by the way, at a premium uh, to market. At at the time, it was done with no warrants and no fees, and uh, management came in for another 160000 so we right. did that 2160000 and that was just announced within the last couple of weeks. Okay, so we Bob.
2: Unfortunately, unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, we'll look to talk to you again sometime soon, and I'll be keeping my listeners updated on your, on your progress as we go, but we are out of time. I'm very sorry. Folks, don't go away, though, because coming up next, Richard Duncan will talk to us about uh, what he thinks about quantitative easing and also about his model and how you can become more or less aggressive depending on what the Federal Reserve is doing in the market. So don't Don't go away, we'll be right back with Richard Duncan.
3: Attention, mining investors! Brazil Resources Incorporated, trading as B R I Z F on the O T C and B R I on the T S X V, is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil, surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000 ounce gold resource. B R I has top geologists, earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil, led by recognized mining executive Amir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources
2: As the bull market in gold resumes, gold shares will explode to much higher levels, and those companies that are ramping up production will take off first. Metanor Resources, symbol MTO in Canada and MEAOF in the U.S., is now in commercial production and producing over 4,500 ounces of gold per month from its bachelor mine in Quebec. With seven drills turning, I look for the company's gold resource to grow dramatically on both its bachelor and berry projects. I believe Metanor now offers major upside potential for savvy investors.
4: Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt.
0: Canamex Resources has commenced a 10,000-meter drill program on its flagship Bruner Gold Project in Nevada. This follows a successful 2013 field season, which included a 58-meter intercept of 5.2 grams per ton gold. NYSE market-listed Gold Resource Corporation just completed a $2 million strategic investment in Canamex. And NYSE-listed Hecla Mining Company also is a strategic investor. Canamex Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under symbol CSQ and on the OTCQX under symbol C-N-M-X-F.
1: You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host Jay Taylor and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Richard Duncan. Richard is the publisher of the video newsletter Macro Watch and the author of three books on the global economic crisis. The first one was The Dollar Crisis Causes, Consequences, Cures that was published in 2003. It explained why a worldwide economic calamity was inevitable given the flaws in the post-Bretton Woods international monetary system and that book was a bestseller. The Corruption of Capital In 2009, it was written, and it describes the long series of U.S. policy mistakes responsible for the crisis. It also outlined the policies necessary to permanently resolve it. And then his latest book focuses specifically on the role that credit creation has played in this disaster. Its title is The New Depression, The Breakdown of the Paper Money Economy. Since beginning his career as an equities analyst in Hong Kong in 1986, Richard has served as global head of investment strategy at ABN Amaral Asset Management in London. He worked as a financial sector specialist for the World Bank in Washington, D.C., and headed equity research department for James Capel Securities and Solomon Brothers in Bangkok. He also worked as a consultant for the IMF in Thailand during the Asian crisis. Richard has appeared frequently on CNBC, CNN, BBC, and Bloomberg Television, as well as on BBC World Service Radio. His video newsletter, Macro Watch, analyzes trends in credit growth, liquidity, and government policy in order to anticipate their impact on economic growth and asset prices. And uh, Macro Watch can be found at RichardDuncanEconomics.com, RichardDuncanEconomics.com. And I believe Richard does have a discount for listeners to this show. He just uh, recently launched this service. It's an excellent service. It's one that I'm following myself. And there is a 50% discount for listeners. So, those of you, uh, everybody out there, really should take down again the website is richardduncaneconomics.com. And you need to also jot this down. You'll need a code, and that code is Times, T I M E S, if you want that discount to uh, Richard's service. Well, we're going to talk to Richard now and welcome him with us because um, he always has a lot of very interesting things to say and very appropriate things to say with regard to the economy and uh, and appropriate in terms of helping you figure out which way you should go when you're, and where you should put your money. So welcome, Richard. It's really good to have you with me again.
6: Jay, thank you. Thank you very much for having me back on the show.
2: It's really good to have you, as always. Um, you know, I think... Um, The last time we talked, we talked about one of your books. Uh, I I think you have great insights, and you're... What is really, uh, I think, important to me, Richard, is that you've worked with all of these uh, establishment institutions uh, and uh, seem uh, to have a better grasp, at least uh, perhaps because you're no longer with them, you're allowed to talk about uh, what your views are. But in any event, um, it's very interesting. Your view is that quantitative easing won't end in 2014. Now, I think the Fed has come out and said they want to continue to reduce or taper the amount of treasuries and, and mortgage-backed securities that they buy, I think reducing it by $10 billion perhaps a month uh, every, I don't know, every three months or so. But if they continue to do this, then by 2014, they would uh, discontinue quantitative easing. But you don't think that that's likely to happen. Why not?
6: Okay, well, I believe now that it's credit growth that drives economic growth. Going back almost all the way to World War II... Any time that the United States has had less than 2% credit growth adjusted for inflation, we've had a recession. And we don't get out of the recession until we have another big surge of credit expansion. And and what I mean by total credit, total credit and total debt are the same Mm -hmm. same amount. So what I mean by that is all the debt in the country, government debt, household sector debt, corporate debt, financial sector debt, all the debt. If it doesn't grow by at least 2% adjusted for inflation, then we have a recession. Well, that's happened nine times since 1952, every time we've had a recession. Well, here we are now, and once again, we don't have 2% credit growth. And it doesn't look like we're going to have 2% credit growth within the foreseeable future. Mm. And it's only been the Fed's quantitative easing that has been pushing up asset prices and creating a wealth effect that's driven consumption and allowed the economy to grow, despite the fact that the unemployment rate is so high, the workforce is not growing and wages are actually falling. So if they carry on with this taper schedule of theirs, then by the second half of the year, liquidity is going to become very tight and interest rates are going to start going up and asset prices are going to start falling and most probably the U.S. would be back in recession by the end of the year. So I don't think they're going to stand by and allow that to happen. The Feds worked too hard to push asset prices up to drive the economy so far. We're not going to allow it going to go into reverse now, I don't believe.
2: Yeah, well, it certainly seems, as David Stockman has said on this show, every time the stock market starts to decline, and through it, he calls it a hissy fit, the Fed starts to pump money into the system. But, you know, Richard, the, the thing is, what you're saying is absolutely right, but it seems to me a redistribution of wealth in an enormous terms. I saw a chart just recently that showed, you know, maybe the top 10% of the population in America, at least, are doing better, are doing as well or better, but the bottom 90% are doing are not keeping up and you mention unemployment is high but we're seeing it's not the money is getting into the stock market and the people that own stocks and and those that can play games in the equity markets and and with derivatives and and fancy computer models and so forth are able to pick the pockets of other people but it doesn't seem to be getting into the real economy why do you think that's so
6: well i think you have to consider the alternative or at least the alternative as the fed sees it mm-hmm. i believe that they're so frightened that the global economy could collapse into a severe new Great Depression. Mm-hmm. They view what they are doing through quantitative easing as being very successful and preventing that outcome. So they see this pushing up of asset prices as, as being very successful hmm. and have prevented this new Great Depression. I mean, let's, let's think about it. Since we broke the link between dollars and gold, that happened in 1968 and in 1971. Up until 1968, there was a law that Fed had to maintain gold backing for the dollar. But that law was removed in 1968. And afterwards, that removed all the constraints on how much credit could be created. And afterwards, credit absolutely exploded and started driving economic growth in the U.S. Uh, for example, total credit in the U.S. went through $1 trillion for the first time in 1964. And by 2007, 43 years later... It had expanded 50 times to 50 trillion. So from 1 trillion to 50 trillion in just 43 years. That expansion of credit created the biggest economic boom in history. It ushered in the age of globalization and made everyone much more prosperous than they would have been otherwise. The problem is it now seems that credit can't expand any further because the private sector can't repay the debt that it has already. Mm It's only been the intervention of the government through running these massive fiscal deficits combined with creating trillions of dollars of fiat money that's kept this massive global bubble inflated. The alternative was collapsing into a new Great Depression. So I, I think that's the way they see it, is either this or the
2: end. Mm-hmm. But how much further can it go? Because as I look at the charts, you, you mentioned total debt in the United States. It seems to be growing exponentially. And I don't know what it looks like in Japan is perhaps even worse and China is growing and, and increasing their monetary uh, aggregates so, so dramatically as well. But you know, when I look at this chart of exponential growth in debt, and then I look at the chart of GDP, GDP is growing at best in a linear fashion. And debt is growing exponentially. It just seems to me, Richard, that sooner or later, this can't go on that it's going, the system's going to break down. I hear what you're saying. In the near term, you know, the Fed says, well, it's either this or that, and the lesser of two evils is to keep the game going, to kick the can down the road a little further, as they say. But how much further can this go? You know, I was reading something from Jim Rickards, who's also been on this show in the past. Recently, Rickards is saying that he's spoken to a couple of Federal Reserve uh, officials, and they're really v- very, very concerned about the Fed's balance sheet, in fact. And uh, they they even said that if the Fed, uh, they, they acknowledge privately that if if the Fed were to mark its uh, its assets to market, that it would in fact be underwater. And now, if we're starting to have higher interest rates, if that if that occurs, because interest rates have been kept so artificially low for so long, I mean, it seems to me at some point there could be a loss of confidence in the dollar, possibly.
6: You know, I know that you're an Austrian economist, and I am too. Although I'm afraid, perhaps a bit of a heretic, uh, as an Austrian. <laughs> <laughs> but once we broke the link between dollars and gold, in my view, there no, there 's no longer now any difference between money and credit. There used to be mm-hmm. money used to be gold and credit was credit. now all the money 's credit and The Austrians believed that it was the injection of new money into the economic system that created booms uh-huh. and that the booms inevitably bust, and right they were uh, but we 've been injecting so much credit into our economic system now for five decades. It's expanded from $1 trillion to $50 trillion. We created such a massive economic bubble that I, I really wonder now whether Hayek and von Mises really would advocate letting market forces work and allowing this bubble to deflate. It would be such a massive deflation that it would probably be worse than what we saw in the 1930s. And uh, I don't really think our civilization could survive that. Mm. Certainly nothing like that has ever occurred in a democratic system before.
7: Mm-hmm.
6: So I think our policymakers feel that they don't have any choice. However we got here, here we are. Either we keep this bubble inflated or else, uh, or else we relive the worst horrors of the 1930s and perhaps even the 1940s. So you're, how long can it go on? Well, On the private sector side, it looks like the household sector can't bear any more debt. Mm -hmm. The corporations are still borrowing, and they're using that money that they borrow to buy back stocks to push up stock prices and boost the corporate managers' bonuses. That seems like it can go on a little bit further. But where there's the most scope for this to continue well into the future is U.S. government borrowing. The U.S. government only has only 100% government debt to GDP. Japan has, Japan's government has 250% government debt to GDP. And they've been doing this now for 24 years, running very large budget deficits every year, spending the money, and keeping Japan's economy from collapsing into depression that way. So, and they've managed to do this without driving up interest rates in Japan. The yield on the 10-year government bond there is roughly 60 basis points. The government can borrow money for 10 years at 60 basis points (laughs) a year. So let's think about this. The U.S. government then, let's say maybe they can't take the debt to 250% of GDP, but just for instance, taking it to 200% of GDP, well, the U.S. economy is $17 trillion in size. And so they could borrow another $17 trillion before they hit uh, 200% government debt to GDP, and that's assuming that the economy doesn't grow at all.
7: Mm-hmm.
6: Whereas, of course, if they spent $17 trillion, would have a massive economic boom. And uh, in other words, you see where I'm going. with? It. If the government were to continue borrowing and spending, this could, in all probability, go on for a very long time. Uh, not forever. I would say I would put it somewhere between 10 and 15 years, but still, that... Uh, that would be 10 or 15 years in which we don't collapse into a new Great Depression.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's buying some more time. Agree- I agree with you on that. But as you, I hear what you're saying is that the government is getting bigger and bigger, and so it's, it seems to be probably crowding out the private sector, no?
6: You know, I think it's, we're well past that. I like to think of it as in this way. It looks to me that capitalism died during the two world wars, when government the government essentially had to take over the economy if we just focus on the second world war mm-hmm. the united states was in a depression for 10 years and then the war, war started and then government spending increased 900% and that massive increase in government spending of course will that ended the depression and put everybody back to work but after the war was over there was no weaning the economy back off its dependence on government spending mm. For a brief while, the government spending dropped back to something like, t- before Before the Depression, the government was spending something like 3% of GDP. During World War II, it went up to more than half of GDP. Then government spending dropped back to about 12% of GDP But after the war, but very soon the Korean War started and the Cold War started. And now on average, the government has spent roughly 21% of GDP for the last 70 years. So we've had a government-directed economic system now going back to World War II, and right. the problem is, is now this, is, this has already distorted the economy. Yeah. It's created yeah. all kinds of misallocations and all kinds of trouble that wouldn't have come about if we'd remained in a laissez-faire economic system. But a laissez-faire economic system probably would not have allowed us to defeat the Nazis or the Soviet Union, for that matter, who, who certainly were using all the tools of the governments, their governments, Resources available to them.
2: Yeah, it, it seems to me that the uh, the disease or the cure may be worse than the disease. Longer term, while buying some time in the shorter term, it was Jimmy Carter just recently said to a German trade group in Atlanta that the United States does not currently have a working democracy. It seems to me that what we're doing is undermining the very very concept of the uh, U.S. Constitution, which I, I somewhat argue that uh, once we went off the gold standard, that was a violation, and and the U.S. Constitution, the seeds were planted. For its destruction, uh, certainly, as you say, to finance wars—that's um, what governments have done forever. They've. Uh, debase their currency. How uh, how important do you think then the the gold issue was in this whole evolution? I mean, we, we didn't go off the gold standard completely until like 1971 or 1968, if you want to take that date. But had we stayed on the gold standard back then, uh, international gold standard, the world would be a much different place now, it seems to me, and that the United States would not have been able to take the leading role that it has taken uh, during that time frame. Do you agree?
6: Absolutely. The world would be a very different place. You- US would have had far fewer resources available to it. I think if I could choose and we could all do it over again, I think it would probably have been a better idea to remain on the gold standard. But you have to keep in mind that the Soviet Union might still be around had we done that, because the government wouldn't have been able to spin them into into bankruptcy the way that President Reagan did. And <coughs> no telling what kind of world it would be. We wouldn't have had these massive trade deaths. So China and Japan would not have had their massive trade surpluses. Mm -hmm. Japan would not have boomed and bubbled. And China would probably be a very poor third world country as it was before it started having trade surpluses with the U.S. in 1990. Mm -hmm. So we wouldn't have globalization. Many people living in the developing world would be far poorer than they are at the moment. But on the other hand, we wouldn't now be on the verge of collapsing into a new Great Depression
7: either. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we
6: would have much slower growth, but probably more stable and sustainable growth. But, of course, there is the geopolitical wild card of what about the, Russia, the Soviet Union
2: mm-hmm.
6: and communism, which was a real threat to the United States, I think,
2: at that time. Yeah. We certainly would have it would seem to me a more balanced geopolitically balanced world now instead of one in which it seems to me sovereignty is being stripped away from countries as uh, as corporate interests seem to be looking to through treaties and so forth create a more of a one world government. Do you agree with that idea?
6: I do. I've I listened to your show and I've I've heard you elaborate that argument and it it does I do think that there's a lot of validity to that. Uh, personally, the way I see it it's not so much I view the world as, as, there have, as having one driving conspiratorial force mm-hmm. making these decisions. To me, it, it seems like it is evolving. And just in, in, in some sense, the way that plants grow toward the sun, mm-hmm. the economy and the society also evolves and, and grows uh, toward, as it seems, toward profits, mm-hmm. the desire to expand and to enrich, enrich themselves. This drives individuals, it drives corporations, uh, many types of groups, and it certainly drives nations. And the thing is, the power <clears throat> doesn't lie with just one individual or a few individuals. It keeps shifting around. Mm-hmm. Sometimes one group has it, sometimes another group has it, and sometimes no one really has it, and compromises emerge out of the struggle. Uh, it seems that the n- nature of our economic system is evolving in, in the way that you've described it. Mm-hmm. It does want to knock down trade barriers, it does want to quote unquote make the world safe for capitalism whatever <laughs> whatever that involves whatever price that that it may involve and so so yes I, I think i agree with you
2: yeah that's the direction of things and and i hear what you're saying about it's not one group of people necessarily it's a it's a composite of, of people around the world well i have to think about what is you you mentioned the soviet union is no longer the soviet union it's russia but uh, and as you noted, you know when we went off the gold standard it allowed the United States basically to have resources, I would argue at the expense of other countries other, other areas around the world that allowed us to Im- to increase our economic and military power around the world. And now you see uh, the Ukrainian situation and, and the Chinese are gobbling up as much gold as they seem to be able to get And both the Chinese and the Russians and some of the other developing countries have talked openly around would be one as well, about wanting to get rid of this, of um, the U.S. dollar as the means of, you know, clearly they see the U.S. dollar as a as a weapon, as a means of gobbling up resources, and there seems to be some resistance to this. Do you see that uh, as part of what's going on in the Ukraine right now?
6: Well, let me talk about a little bit more about China. Instead, that's closer to my part of the world. I uh-huh. live in, in Thailand, as you know, and China does often say that it would like some sort of different global monetary system, one that's not based on the dollar. But in reality, they're trapped in this system. For instance, if, if we did have a different kind of monetary system, say one once again based on gold, just for instance, then the United States only has a limited amount of gold. And it has such a large trade deficit with China every year. Within, I would guess, within three to six months, the United States would have to pay all of its gold to China to cover China's to cover the things it buys from China mm-hmm. and then after after six months the United States would have no more gold therefore it could not buy another pair of tennis shoes from China therefore China's economy would implode because it's absolutely dependent on export-led growth and exporting to America
7: mm-hmm.
6: so they need to export to America and the only way that in order to create tens or hundreds hundreds of millions of jobs within China it's what they've been doing now for decades and without this ability to export to the U.S., which involves agreeing to accept dollars in exchange, uh, China's economic evolution simply would not have taken place. And if we go- went back to a gold-based international monetary system, that would mean that China's trade surplus would, would go back into balance and China's economy would collapse.
7: Mm-hmm.
6: By the way, China's economy is quite a mess, as it is already.
2: Yeah. So they
6: certainly couldn't, they couldn't withstand that.
2: Yeah, and certainly we've cut back on our imports from China very dramatically, I think in part when the consumer hit the wall uh, after 2008, 2009 perhaps, and there's been a, a, a sharp um, reduction in imports from China. There would be those that argue that uh, China already has all of our gold, but that's another issue that uh, we, we don't have that much time to uh, to go into a lot of other topics I'd love to uh, pick your brains on. But basically I'd, I'd like to for you to talk a little bit about your model, which is really a liquidity game. talk to our listeners a little bit about your model and what it's telling you now about where we're at uh, uh, in this cycle
6: Okay, I have something I call a liquidity gauge that measures the liquidity within the financial system It's pretty basic, it's not very complicated There are two sources of liquidity as I define it One is the Fed's quantitative easing When the Fed prints money and buys financial assets, it injects liquidity into the system. That's the first kind of liquidity. There's a second kind of liquidity that's a little bit more complicated, and that comes from the central banks outside the United States, like the PBOC in China, Mm -hmm. because they, too, are creating fiat money and using it to buy dollar assets. And you can measure this by the size of their foreign exchange reserves. So this year, for example... China's trade surplus with the United States is going to be something like $300 billion. So $300 billion will go into China. And as the manufacturers, they sell their goods in the U.S., they're paid in dollars. They take those dollars back to China. They want to convert them into the Chinese currency, the yuan. But if they did that in a free market, that would drive the yuan up to such a high level that it would kill China's export-led growth and their economy would... Go into recession. So, to prevent that from happening, the Chinese central bank, the PBOC, it creates yuan out of thin air and buys all of the dollars coming into China. So, this year, the PBOC will create $300 billion worth of yuan and buy $300 billion. And once they have those dollars, they will use those dollars to buy US dollar assets. So, that's the second source of liquidity Mm -hmm. in the US. So, the Fed's printing paper money and other central banks printing paper money and using it to buy Yes, yeah, So that injects the liquidity, and the thing that absorbs the liquidity or sucks the liquidity out of the system is the U.S. budget deficit. So if you add the two sources of liquidity and deduct the size of the U.S. budget deficit, then you can see whether there's excess liquidity or a liquidity drain. And when there's excess liquidity, asset prices, stocks, property, bonds, commodities, tend to go up. And when there's a liquidity drain, Asset prices tend to go down. So we saw the peak levels of excess liquidity based on this liquidity gauge occurred in the year 2000 when we had the Nasdaq bubble, and again around 2005-2006 when we had the U.S. property bubble. And then, once again, an all-time new peak occurred last year because the Fed printed a trillion dollars and injected it into the markets. And so last year, once again, the stock market went up 30 percent and home prices went up 13 percent in the U.S. because the liquidity gauge was showing a great deal of excess liquidity. Now, it's going to be interesting. You can look on a quarter by quarter basis and things are going to change quite radically in the second half of this year. In the second quarter of this year, we're still going to have a considerable amount of excess liquidity because based on the Fed's current plans of tapering, that suggests the Fed's still going to print $145 billion in the second quarter. But in the second quarter, the government's not going to borrow any money because in the second quarter, the Americans pay taxes. Hmm. So, so the trade there won't be a budget, government budget deficit in the second quarter. So between the Fed's injecting $145 billion through quantitative easing and the additional money that will come in from abroad, as I explained earlier, we're going to have a lot of excess liquidity in the second quarter. And so there could continue to be upward pressure on asset prices. And I believe that explains why the the stock markets are still flirting with all-time high levels now.
7: Mm -hmm.
6: But things change in the third quarter. Because in the third quarter, the Fed will only be printing $85 billion. And in the fourth quarter, only $20 billion. And the government will once again be back in the markets borrowing to fund their budget deficits. So at that point, we move from a excess liquidity situation in the second quarter to a liquidity drain in the third quarter and a severe liquidity drain in the fourth quarter. So I believe at that point, sometime after mid-year, we'll start to see interest rates on the 10-year bond yield moving up, hmm. causing property prices and to move down and stock prices to move down and therefore net worth to move down and consumption to move down and the U.S. to start heading back to recession, at which point I believe the Fed will flip-flop And announced that they're going to continue with even more quantitative easing or continue on with quantitative easing on into 2015 and in all probability well beyond 2015. So I don't think QE is going to end this year. I think it's going to be dictated by the level of the stock market.
2: Yeah, well, it's fascinating stuff, Richard. Unfortunately, we're just about out of time now. But I should mention to my listeners that uh, what Richard's talking about, this liquidity gauge, is accessible at Macro Watch. That's Macro Watch. That's Richard's new service. And I guess, Richard, what you're doing is these these items you just talked about, these factors that increase liquidity or decrease it, is what you watch and keep your your subscribers abreast of, and then they can use that for their own investment decisions to a certain extent. For example, if you think the system is going to contract, there may Maybe some short sales uh, on the equity markets and so forth that individuals might want to consider or, or factor into. On the other hand, uh, if the expansion is continuing, then obviously you want to you, you join the party or stay with the party until it's over, right?
6: That's right. Yeah, I think in this new age of fiat money that we're living in, it's credit growth drives economic growth. Liquidity determines the direction of asset prices. And the government attempts to control both credit growth and liquidity to make sure that the economy doesn't collapse. So MacroWatch analyzes these trends in credit growth, liquidity, and government policy because those are the things that will determine which way asset prices move.
2: Well, it's it's fabulously interesting. Uh, it really is, Richard. You know, it it isn't what necessarily what I would like to see. My ideal would be to go back to a free market, global free market economy. But maybe that's something we can only encounter in the next life. From what you're telling me, it doesn't seem as though uh, as though it's, it's likely happen happen. In fact, it seems like we're headed in one direction because the pain of trying to resolve you know, what we've gotten ourselves into is, is too great uh, to be even thinkable. So it, what you say makes an awful lot of sense to me. It's not what I want to hear, but it is what it is, and we have to We have to cope with reality. I want to thank you again for being with us. And, folks, again, it's RichardDuncanEconomics.com, RichardDuncanEconomics.com. And those of you who are fortunate enough to be listening to this show can get a 50% discount, but you need to jot this down. The code word that you'll need is TIMES, T-I-M-E-S, TIMES. I want to thank you very much, Richard, for being with me again and look forward to doing it again sometime in the not-too-distant future.
6: Jay, thank you. It's a pleasure talking with you.
2: Well, I believe Richard just provided some very good ideas about the economy. I'm not sure I completely agree with his view that credit has made the world a more affluent place. It may have done so to an extent, especially for people who are closest to the credit-creating process, that would be the bankers and the politicians. But as Richard himself pointed out, credit creation has led to malinvestment and the creation of bubbles, which have the effect of destroying wealth when bubbles inevitably implode. Moreover, I believe, for example, that the cost of staying alive, which used to be defined as a cost of living or consumer price index in the United States, is considerably higher than the official numbers given to us by the government, and that while nominal incomes are higher due to monetary expansion, they are not nearly as high as they would appear in real terms if the government looked honestly at how much more it is costing for average people to feed their families and just simply to stay alive. I think the work of John Williams of Shadow Stats is of value in making that case. So, I think Richard is right in saying we would have been better off not going off the gold standard. But now that we have done so, it has all been inevitable that policymakers will continue down the same path, the same pathological line, quite frankly, until the entire global system blows up. Richard thinks we could have another 15, 20 years or so before the system finally implodes. And in thinking about that, I'm reminded of a tiny book I read by a medical doctor and futurist, Dr. Richard Swenson. His book was written back in 1999, when he observed how various data points, including debt, was growing exponentially and how that was very unstable. Dr. Swenson's view at that time was that he could not see how the world could hold together beyond another hundred years, except for some sort of divine providence. Again, the name of that book is Hurtling Towards Oblivion, published by Nav Press in 1999. I would suggest that you pick up a copy and read it if you really want to sort of think seriously about the problems that lie ahead. But getting back to Richard's view that the existing system could remain in place for another decade or so, he may very well be right. As Ron Paul himself has said on this show, Ron said that he was surprised at how long the Keynesian has Keynesians have been able to keep the system intact. Agree or disagree on Richard's points, I am thankful to him for coming on our show, and also for granting you, my listener, a 50% discount subscription to his macro watch service, which you can access at RichardDuncanEconomics.com. He provides a video service that you can use, uh, actually go there to sample the video service at RichardDuncanEconomics.com. And if you go there and sign up for the service, your cost as a listener to this show will be $250 a year as opposed to $500 a year for regular subscribers. But you do need to know your password or your code, and that is TIMES, One thing I believe is that whatever the future holds, we owe it to ourselves and to our families to do the best we can to love and care for them, those around us, our families and others, and I believe Richard's liquidity gauge could be very helpful in that process in remaining solvent and increasing wealth, which of course is a big part of taking care of our families and ourselves. It was also a pleasure talking today with Bob Kramer, the CEO of Canamex Resources. This is a company I've recently purchased shares of for myself based on some really high-grade gold feeder zone intercepts that the company has encountered in Nevada. Given the fact that the stock has been trading at only around 13 cents, I could not resist rolling the dice just a bit on this one. I think it could really come up big for some of the reasons that Bob explained earlier today. I must say that I am very excited about the junior gold share sector in general. Now that it could very well be that the real rise in gold will occur sometime in the second half of this year, as Richard Duncan suggested, that is when he thinks the Fed will do a turnabout and actually start increasing quantitative easing rather than tapering it. That time frame would also fit some of the technical analysts I respect, like Dr. Robert McHugh and Charles Nanner. Nanner's cycle work, for example, has a cyclical bottom for gold in the July to August time frame. Meantime, it may well be that gold shares will continue to lead the bullion market, as they certainly have done so far this year. The shares. I cover in my newsletter for example J Taylor's gold energy and tech stocks are up between 35 and 50% depending on the category while gold is up 12 to 15%. Go to miningstocks.com to sign up for my newsletter. It's published weekly and also a monthly issue is sent out. Next week my special guest will be Alistair Macleod who will talk about a topic very much related to what Richard Duncan talked about today and that is the current monetary situation and gold. And I may have a uh, newsletter writer or two on my show as well to talk about the junior mining sector next week. In closing, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. Thanks to Tacey Trump, my producer, Matt Widener, my, my engineer, for making the show logistically possible. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you.
4: Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt.
0: Canamex Resources has commenced a 10,000-meter drill program on its flagship Bruner Gold Project in Nevada. This follows a successful 2013 field season, which included a 58-meter intercept of 5.2 grams per ton gold. NYSE market-listed Gold Resource Corporation just completed a $2 million strategic investment in Canamex. And NYSE-listed Hecla Mining Company also is a strategic investor. Canamex Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under symbol CSQ and on the OTCQX under symbol c-n-m-x-f